Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women's Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Who doesn't love a good story? English professor Jennifer Holberg joined us on the podcast to talk about the ways literature, scripture, film, art, and life experience all weave themselves together in shaping our souls and our culture. Jennifer explores these ideas in her book, Nourishing Narratives, The Power of Story to Shape Our Faith, a book which draws the reader into the process of carefully examining and reflecting on the stories in our lives. I found so much joy in reading Jennifer's delightful book, and my conversation with her was just as compelling. As you might expect, she is a wonderful storyteller. Jennifer generously shares wise words from her decades of teaching and offers wonderful words of encouragement for our listeners. Also, I'm pleased to tell you that InterVarsity Press is offering a discount for listeners of this podcast. Just use the code IVPPOD25, that's IVPPOD25, for 25% off and free shipping when you purchase Nourishing Narratives at ivypress.com. You can find the link to the book and the discount code in the show notes. And if you listen to the end of the podcast, I've included an excerpt in which Jennifer talks about her thoughts on being a self-described, quote, well-contented spinster. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Jennifer Holberg is professor and chair of the English department at Calvin University and co-director of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, the home of the Festival of Faith and Writing. She is a founding co-editor of the academic journal Pedagogy and also the editor of Shouts and Whispers, 21 writers speak about their writing and their faith. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Can I call you Jennifer? Of course. Okay, super. And I want to talk about your book, but first I'd love to hear a little bit about your life as a professor. Our listeners are mostly women who are connected with academic life in one way or another. And so I'm interested in centering our conversation there. So can you just talk a little bit about your path into academia and teaching? Yeah, well, first of all, just thank you so much for having me. I do feel like I've done a number of podcasts, but this feels like my people. So nice. um, thank you so much for inviting me. And I, I love to to think about what it's like to be a woman in academia, because to answer your question, I've never not been. A year or two ago, I posted a picture on Facebook of myself, you know, doing the first day thing. And it had occurred to me that I have never not had a first day of school since I was four years old. Wow. So... <laughs> I'm not one of those people who took any break. 
for better and for worse. Mm -hmm. We often talk with our students about whether they should take breaks and we usually advise it. But I just have always loved school. I moved nine times growing up. So one of the constants in my life was really school and church. And those were the places that I always immediately found a home. And I start the book off really by talking, telling a, telling a story of school, telling a, a story of a teacher who saw me and appreciated me for who I was as this little nerdy bookworm. Um, and I've really been lucky in my life. I and mean, I talk other places in the book um, also about other people who really poured into me, who encouraged me. I've really been lucky across all of my schooling to have people take an interest in me, give me opportunities, give me scholarships. It's funny, just this week in class, I was lecturing on T.S. Eliot. I always talk about, as we move into the wasteland, because it's full of illusions, right, uh, how educated he was. Hmm. Um, but Eliot was somebody who went all the way through the PhD, but he never came back to defend his dissertation. And so I always make a little joke in my lecture about how if you that's ever you like, make sure you to go back. Um, <laughs> and the student said, you know, can you we don't actually know what the process is. Can you can you explain the process to us a little bit? And we had a little time in class. So I explained the entire kind of graduate education track, at least for humanities people. And I did mention to them that in STEM, it was, you know, different or social sciences, but that all of us have similar kinds of things. And it was funny to me because at the end, first of all, they were horrified with all of the things we have to do, but also like, whoa, all my professors have sort of done And I said, yeah. But at the end of it, one of my students said, so was it worth it? Was all that worth it? And I said, well, of course it was, because I have the greatest job in the world. Yeah. I get to teach you. And I get to read books and talk about them. And I get to do all these different things. I edit an academic journal, and I run a conference, and I've done lots of different things on the campus. And after 26 years in one place, I just feel privileged to be someone who, A, got a job, because mm -hmm. that just doesn't happen. Even for the most talented people, our job market for, for ever since I've been in has been just a hot mess and really cannibalizing I think, generation after generation of younger scholars, not paying them the adjunctification, you know, all the problems of that. So I do feel like I've been a very privileged person in my academic life that at every stage, someone has invested in me. I've won a scholarship or I've gotten a fellowship that's allowed me to be here. And then really won the lottery to get a job at a small college, which was always my dream. So my path has been one where, yes, I've been, I, I've gotten to do, uh, live into my gifts. Um, but I, I say that knowing that that is a really privileged um, position um, and one that I continue to try to live out in gratitude, uh, understanding how it has not been like that for so many other yeah. People who are probably more talented and smart than I am. And I think that's that's an important gesture that I think senior faculty need to take as well, is to understand. Um, I talk quite a bit in the book about sort of my resistance to kids these days rhetoric. And I think that's true for um, academic generations, too. Yeah, I, I think it's troubling when senior faculty or mid-career faculty want to tell younger faculty sort of how to be or do, since their experience and opportunities are really different than even what we thought were terrible in the 90s. So anyway, I, I would say it's been a joyful and wonderful journey, and I, I love it. But also, I know that it's it's I'm I'm in a very small minority of people who've been able to have a tenure track job and and teach at a college that is a wonderful place. So. Yeah. Well, that's that's such a great perspective and very helpful, I think, for our listeners. 
And I love hearing your joy in your job. It comes through in your voice. It comes through in, in your writing as well. I'm curious to know if, um, if there are any moments of struggle that you um, want to highlight from, from your career, especially, um, you know, as a, as a woman professor, sometimes there can be particular struggle. So would you like to speak to that? Sure. And I, I think, you know, part of the reason I try to cultivate joy is because our job can be maddening. <laughs> I go to a lot of meetings. I've run the faculty senate. So if anyone's aware of how faculty senates typically run, that was not always a delight and joy in every moment. I also just finished a six-year run as the chair of our all-campus curriculum committee and lots of changes um, through different provosts. And um, my late mother had a motto that is sort of my life motto as well, which is people have a lot of ideas. (laughs) And that is a really good mantra when you have to sit in a lot of meetings. Mm -hmm. And so the joy of my life really is the classroom. And even there, of course, any of us who have taught know that there are students who don't turn things in and don't pay attention and self-sabotage and all of that. But I try to cultivate joy partly because I do know there's lots of things that are a struggle and disappointing and budget cuts and politics and all of that. I, I would also say as a woman, I, I was just talking about this with a colleague the other day, how I think Gen X women um, are in such an interesting place because we were trained, say we went to a college in the 80s, maybe early 90s, where it was that last generation of the World War II era kind of folks, real old school, you know, the people that didn't have to publish very much, but were incredible scholars because they sat in their office and read because they didn't go to committee meetings and all the sort of faculty governance demands and service demands that have really grown up in the last 30 years were really not. Uh, as much of a thing and but we're real old school teachers and kind of inspirers that kind of thing then going to grad school in sort of the 90s which in English was a very you know the turn to lots of high theory but also the increasing professionalization and an expectation that you would be publishing even as a graduate student Mm -hmm. and and that kind of race that has now become more and more what we do all of that's sort of hard to figure out what our job is um, the journal that I edited is about teaching, and one of the reasons we started is because we wanted to have a place for people to get more credit for thinking about teaching in a more sophisticated and scholarly kind of way. We're published by Duke to sort of give the signal that we're, as is, the, the theorization that we're doing is just as important in a kind of pedagogical context yeah. as it is in a literary theoretical or a whatever. But I think that that's a challenge for me a little bit too. And I would say as a woman, it's been interesting because when I joined my department, women were in the minority. Hmm. And again, had a number of sort of sort of boomer age colleagues who were lovely men, but definitely um, there was some learned helplessness and a <laughs> lot of the, well, who will take the minutes? Well, right. Um, and having to learn how to negotiate that in sort of, I came to Calvin in 98, so late 90s, early zeros, there was some interesting, just interesting dynamics generationally. And I would say sort of my Gen X male colleagues are much more about, we don't have meetings at certain times because they pick up their children. Right. That would never happen when I first came. In fact, the thing that they all did when I first came is they all went and played racquetball all the time together. So we were <laughs> in a golf department. They all played racquetball. And that also meant, though, that they just like went and did stuff. Um, and we had a secretary 
who like typed things for them. And none of the women have the secretary type for them. But there's lots of those little things like that where you sort of learned how to negotiate, but also sort of a level of sexism, not particularly in my department, but I would say just generally in academia that has perhaps changed forms or hopefully gotten better. So yeah, I mean, part of the world is, you know, sort of, it, it's also funny when you've been in a place such a long time to think about the change because now we're a majority female department and I'm the department chair. So from when I came to then, just thinking about how women are um, navigating that, but I still think we have a lot of challenges and I'm sure listeners have lots of stories of ways in which they're still, depending especially on their discipline, but just, you know, Christian colleges, for example, can be kind of bro-y and, and how do you deal with the bro-y? <laughs> and I'm sure I, I've never, I, you know, I was in graduate school, I completely secular universities for my education, but you know, you don't know as much when you're a graduate student, but, but I do think there's just so many things today. I think it's much more about navigating and figuring out still, you know, I have a colleague who like at, just refuses on principle to ever take the minutes because mm -hmm. she's like someone else should. And I, I admire that. Yeah. Um, and, and just thinking a lot more about, well, who's going to do this work and, and assumptions and all of that. And obviously a lot of family life still falls to, to women to do that extra shift. And I think that that's something we have to continue to think about, even in terms of like, like I do the schedule now. So where do I, how do I help people so they don't take teaching eight o'clock because they have to drop off children or, right. you know, how do we, how do we, how do we make very particular kinds of changes to support the kind of place that we want to be? So, yeah. Well, uh, many of our listeners um, are maybe in graduate school or maybe early faculty members and and maybe their, their first year or, or first few years. So I'm wondering if you can offer any advice for a woman beginning her career in study and teaching? Well, I will preface this by saying that if any of my friends are listening to this, they'll know that I'm better at giving advice than give it, taking it. I'd give excellent advice. I just am not always one to, to do what I, what I think is actually correct. <laughs> so just, just know that there, that, that I understand that going into this question, I would say one of the things I think is, is hard when you begin is people would like you to do a lot of things <laughs> and it's exciting. You have opportunities to do things you have to do and there are new classes you can teach and all of those things. But I think it's really important to think about what you really enjoy doing and what you're really good at doing and what you need to get done. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you're on, if you're on a tenure line, you know, you know, there's going to be some things that need to happen. And so what at your university is really important to happen. Is it getting that monograph finished? Is it whatever? At Calvin, I would say you have to have excellent teaching. We still expect to see, you know, scholarly progress, but if you're not teaching well, you're probably not going to do well with us. So, and if that's a place that you need to have some help, we really are there to help. Most departments really do want to mentor people. And even if they don't figure out who will help you, even if they're not in your department, I think a lot of us feel like we have to sort of gut it out or already know how to do it. And you don't. And every place is new and it's a culture you're having to learn. Yeah. And I think that that understanding the culture is really important. So the woman who was assigned to me is, so I was assigned a formal mentor when I went to Calvin and she was for me in a lot of ways, but one of her big things was we had a faculty dining room at the time. And she was like, you have to get out of the department and go meet people. And she would take me, we would go and eat lunch. 
and that was a great way for me informally to meet lots and lots and lots of people to understand the history of the place. I wasn't an alum of the place. And at that time, a lot of people who came to Calvin, that's not so true now, but a lot of Calvin alums. So they already had networks right. and I was moving from Seattle, <laughs> the West coast to the, to a state I'd never even been in to a place that had a very strong culture. And so it was really important to understand how that culture worked and who these folks were and, and appreciate kind of what also had happened. So I think finding mentorship outside the department, Calvin now actually assigns you someone outside your department. And I've worked at, in that capacity and that's been really great. I've had people from chemistry and engineering and I have no, no knowledge of their discipline, but I'm really there to help them learn about our culture and help them become successful and have them... Be the place that you can ask the dumb question that you don't want to ask your own colleagues, maybe. So I think that's really important, finding some kind of all-campus person. I also think thinking about what you can do and what you can't do. And you may be someone that has young children. Uh, you may be someone who is navigating, uh, you know, a long-distance relationship. Like, there's all kinds of things that people also bring so think about what you can and you can't do, and then try to be as much of a stepper-upper without being an overstep, right? Um, and that's the hardest thing. I have the worst, this is why I'm saying I have the worst thing. I I always sort of want to do more than maybe I should. On the other hand, this is one thing I say to some of my students who get told maybe to not do as much, do what your capacity is. So in the book, I, I talk about how I was very irritated for a long time when I would hear colleagues who I didn't feel like did as much as they might, always talking about how busy they were. And I really did not bring out my best Christian personality, shall we say. <laughs> I would think, really, seriously, you are not doing... And then I started thinking, you know, what if I believed them? What if I believed that they do feel filled up? And so I came up with this kind of corny little thing about how everyone is a glass. And, you know, sometimes you just want a shot glass and that's fine. No one wants to drink more than that. And that's delicious. And, and so trying to understand what your capacities are. So if you're someone with high capacity, like do, do the things you want to do. But that's the other thing I would say is, you know, as I've gone through my career, um, I tend to take on lots of little side hustles, little, I, like I enjoyed running faculty senate and I enjoyed, but they were huge jobs on top of my other jobs. And so then people would say to me, well, do you want, would you like to be a dean? Do you want to be a provost? Do you want to, you know, we'd like to recruit you for this, that, or the other. And I would think about it and because I do enjoy that work and I'm good at it. And I think you really should also start to say to yourself, what am I good at? And be unapologetic about that. But one of the things I think I'm good at is I'm a good teacher. Even though I go to a lot of meetings, I really love the minute I have to say, I'm sorry, I got to go teach. Yeah. And I like to walk in my classroom and have that hour with my students. Even if it's not the greatest hour, it's still a great hour. And every time I've thought about drifting into something else, full-time administration, which I could do, I've just thought that wouldn't give me joy. In fact, it would rob me from joy. And so I don't mind doing other things. I like being chair, for example, but I wouldn't want to do it all the time. And there are some people as their career goes on that they say, you know, I love this. Being a provost is just something where I can fix problems and set agendas and wonderful. And I think one of the joys of the academic career is that you can do so many different things. You can run centers and edit journals and, you know, do conferences and, and that can evolve over your, over your career. But I also think be confident in who you are and what you want to do 
and figuring out the opportunities to get better at it. And of course, there's all the things we have to do, teaching scholarship service, right? So we have to do some of them, but some of them we're really going to excel in and figure out which things are giving you joy and making sure that you're giving yourself joy in your in your work life and not just everything seems like a terrible drudgery <laughs> and draining you of energy. Yeah, yeah. That's it's great. Because it's a marathon. And I think that's the other thing. I think early on, it's probably like when you have, I, I don't know this because I don't have children, but it seems like kind of when people have little kids and it's just all like all consuming and it's all they can think of. And it seems like it's never going to end, but it does. And you do get tenure and then you have a long career ahead of you. You know, I got tenure in my four in you know, I think I was about 40. Life is long. You got a long <laughs> career ahead of you. So think about it in chapters and stages and what you want to accomplish, what you have energy for now coming out of graduate school. Like your research is probably hot on your brain and you're ready to keep moving with it. And that's exciting. That's great. And a lot of times there's lots of early career. At Calvin, we give a lot of early career course releases and things like that to help you do that and get allies that help you remind yourself of what you're good at. So uh, another right. long answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you, I mean, you have so much experience, and and so and you're so thoughtful that I really appreciate everything that you're saying. So that's well. This so is something helpful. I. This is something I think a lot about because one of the things I talk about in the book is how I see people who don't think they're enough, mm. and and I really see this in talented young women so so often. First of all, they don't know how good they are and how smart they are and how amazing they are. And they just can't seem to to own that. What they hear is what they haven't done, what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole life of shoulds and a whole life of anxiousness about how they're not living up. And so often as their professor or their colleague, I just want to say, oh, baby, you're doing such a good job. <laughs> and you got to find some people in your life that can say that to you and you need to believe them. And that's not to say we can't keep doing better and striving, but you know what? It's, it's, it's amazing what you're already doing. And to live into that piece of like, Hey, I'm, I'm doing a good job today. I always say to young teachers, you know, I've done teacher, like lots of teacher training over my life. And I would say, you know, think about baseball. You can get in the hall of fame with like a 400 is considered good. Well, that's hardly a home run ever. So if your class <laughs> is basically a six, single if you if you can get on base every day hey even a walk is walks as good as a run baby it's about consistency it's about hey today's class was a double okay you know i'll still get in the hall of fame that average pretty good just enjoying the fact that you're getting to do what you what you like to study and you get to do it in a place with lots of other people who are super smart and are are getting to do fun stuff too i would hate to have to work in an office so many jobs i don't want to do and God bless people that do them. But I just think, man, I'm just like, here I sit in my little library and yay. <laughs> but but that people need to like, remember how, how talented you are. Mm -hmm. Like you're in grad school for a reason. You're someone who's smart and who's capable and God has plans for those gifts and know that the, the, the opportunities will be there for you to use them in all kinds of ways. That is, that's a beautiful word for all of our listeners to hear. So thank you for that. Well, we've started to talk about your book a little bit, but I really want to dive into it um, in earnest. It is entitled Nourishing Narratives, The Power of Story to Shape Our Faith. And I really enjoyed reading this book. It is beautiful. It is many layered. You have so many references to literature and art and scripture 
and your own personal stories, which are so fascinating. It was really a joy <laughs> to read. So I would like to start by helping the listeners get a sense of the purpose of the book. And um, you write in chapter one, this book is for everyone hoping to think more deeply about what it means to be fundamentally story-shaped people, people hungry for narratives that are life-giving. Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure, for sure. You know, the book is really written for a non-academic audience. Um, it's written for my gen ed students. It's written for the people I go off and teach Sunday school to, partly because I do think that we are story-shaped. In other words, I think that there's a sensibility that, oh, we're shaped by laws or we're shaped by, but I really think most of what we're shaped by is stories that our families have told us. We're the pretty one. We're the smart one. We're not the pretty one. We're not the, right? We're the favorite child. We're in the smart group. We're not the smart group. But lots and lots of stories that we tell ourselves, that our, that our families tell us, that our churches tell us, that our professors tell us. I mean, I have so many people who tell me they don't like books because they, they had a teacher that told them they couldn't write. And so I want us to think about, A, what those stories, sort of the content of kind of the toxic narratives and the nourishing ones, but also it's a book really about having better um, interpretive tools. So there's a lot of books in this space sort of want to talk about what you read, um, you know, read Shakespeare and become a better person. I like Shakespeare, but I'm not sure I want to make that claim for him. Uh, <laughs> but I, what I want you to think about is really what are the, what are the narratives that you've, that you've kind of internalized and are those ones that are helping you grow or are they actually holding you back? I think a lot of times, if you think about people in middle age, when they have midlife crises, that's often a failure of a story, right? They get to a certain point, they've achieved certain things, and then there's what what's next in the story. They they, they can't imagine. And so we, we actually have an expression, I couldn't even imagine. Mm -hmm. That's true, right? We couldn't even imagine. And part of the problem is, is then because the story kind of, it wasn't rich enough, it runs out. And then what? And sometimes, as I talk about in the book, we have narratives that we've accepted, but, or we say we have certain narratives sort of based in our theology, but the way we actually live or act, or maybe even secretly believe are at odds with that. So how do we put those two things together and sort of get to better, to better narratives? So the book is very, um, not every single reviewer has loved the the mode of it, but basically it's sort of discursive in the way that I want to use stories to help you think about story. Um, and I want you to think about your own story as I sort of share some of mine. And I want to then draw on lots of different things, not just sort of canonical texts, but everything from film to the Bible to, you know, the literature that I teach. So it's really about how do we develop better critical tools for every time a story is presented to us that wants to shape us, I mean, Christians might use the word disciple us, everything that we're presented with is a little bit of a story, and story tends to normalize. So if you hear a story over and over and over and over again, it starts to seem normal, whether or not it is, right. or whether or not it's moral, or whether or not it's ethical. But once it happens enough, you just kind of go, oh, well, I guess 
And so part of it is Christians telling ourselves the right kind of stories, like what we were just talking about with feeling enough. If we say in our hearts, oh, God loves me, God loves me unconditionally. I talk in the book about um, Gerard Manley Hopkins' wonderful poem where he talks about how as messed up as we are, we're all immortal diamonds. We say that, but we don't act like that. Okay. You know, we say, oh, I'm beloved of God, but then, oh, but I'm so, right, I'm I'm so messed up all the time. Right. And so I, I think that it's it's about bringing that those Venn diagrams together about the story that the, the gospel tells us and the story that we actually live into. And so there's lots of different examples. The book starts off with sort of and my apologies to my social sciences colleagues, because I know they're not really case studies, but they're sort of an English professor's take on what about what if we thought of, of God as friend or uh, God as uh, the, the plenitude of God or the etc. So I sort of talk about those kinds of stories as a way to kind of test it out. Then I talk about vocation. And then if we have better stories and better ways of interpreting them, how will that matter? That's the end of the book. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the broad, the broad overview. It's such a fascinating structure. I mean, I confess, you know, as I was reading the book and taking notes, I just kept coming up with more and more questions I wanted to ask you (laughs) because there were so many fascinating things that popped out of it. It felt like, I mean, because it's not particularly linear, but it felt more like a a treasure map with lots of little gems. Like, you know, each chapter was, let's explore this land and see, you know, and, and there are different stories or poems or or pieces that you you drew ideas out of and then sometimes you would go back to another one in a different chapter it was just really fun <laughs> to read well that's a kind way of you of talking about it that's what i intended but i also i think because of so many years of teaching and one of the groups i really love teaching is is the general education student is the core kid i love the guy who comes in and tells me he's never read a poem or the woman who says, oh, I, you know, the last time I read a novel was, I don't even remember. And particularly not like sort of 19th century novels or Dante or things that maybe seem a little daunting. And I love by the end when they say to me, which they always do at some point, oh, this is so relatable. I didn't realize this was about my life. Mm -hmm. Turns out, yeah, stories are. Because I wrote it for sort of everyday people, not academics who can spend, you know, a long time reading a 20 page chapter, there's definitely like sort of snippets that you can read and then you can put it down. So if you have little kids, you can read like three pages and you can get the idea and then you can put it down and finish making supper. And uh, I have an 86 year old neighbor who's reading just a snippet a day for her devotion. Oh, Oh, Um, that's so sweet. Right. But I wanted it to be something where you could sort of think it's a little bit I talk in the book about a thing I do in my writing course on slow looking. And it's not necessarily a book that I recommend people just race through. You can definitely like sort of take a little bit, think about it, think about how the next bit they all do kind of connect eventually. But they're they're really more for you as almost jumping off points to think about yourself and to think about well, what would that mean for me? Or what's an example from my life or from a movie I like? Um, so I, I didn't mean it to be sort of definitive. It's much more a kind of magpie approach to the many things I have picked up that I will now present to you. And of your treasure map thing, I think I'm going to steal that. What's funny to me is I've done sort of book groups and conversations like this. Every single time someone picks something different, that's 
fun for me because I'm like, oh, you like that thing. Oh, okay, that's cool. And there there was one reviewer who just, there's one story in the book about that I love that's about these, these birds in Africa that help them find honey. This reviewer just like called it out. They were like, this random story. I hated that story. I'm like, oh, really? You don't like the honey guys? <laughs> but I, I don't know what turned them off about it. They really didn't say anything except they thought it was sort of random. But I I went back and read it and I was like, well, no, it anyway. It connects. So, yeah. um, so at, for those of you who are willing to read it, please know it it is meant for you to be um, engaged and and entertained and but also just for you to think of your own stories and I love when people then tell me like oh that reminds me of this thing that's exactly what I want you to do because that's what I want you to do in class we read this poem about someone's love affair and then they want to tell me oh this feels like this or do you know this Marvel movie or whatever <laughs> and that's awesome because that's how we see how story is is shaping us yeah um, and we think about the stories that really appeal to us, whether they're romantic comedies or whether they're the Marvel Universe or Harry Potter or whatever generation you are, the songs of Taylor Swift, yes. right? All these are little stories that are telling me what the world is like and telling me what normal behavior is. So I can quote a lot of Taylor Swift because I connect it in class when we talk about various poetic conceits and mm -hmm. we say, well, look, Taylor Swift is participating in a thing that says it's okay to be drunk in the back of the car. And I cried out back, blah, blah, blah. Right. That's normal behavior though. Right. Yes. Because Taylor told me it was. And is that really what you believe? Well, no, but I do. Right. right, right and so right. part of that is, as we're thinking about how to be discipled, and how stories give us more to be faithful with, they can also give us less to be faithful with. And that's when people start having sort of deconstructive moments or uh, things like that. It's when their stories are in, in opposition or in somehow there's a rub there, yeah. right? So that's kind of what the book's about. Is It's supposed to be sort of a fun way of thinking about, thinking through literature, thinking through all these stories to talk about just how much almost everything we do is is based in a story. So I tell one story in the book about um, Elizabeth Edwards, who was the wife of a guy who ran for president in the Zeros, and he cheats on her. Their marriage breaks up and his presidential campaign goes away. But she says in an interview, I thought I was living in one novel, and it turns out I was living in another one. And that always stuck to me with me out of that interview because I think so many of us, we think we're living in one story, or we want to be living in it, right? And and these narrative expectations keep coming up against each other because we always expect a story. We really do. And we all know what's going to come next in our life or we all hope. And those are all then disciplining us in ways about how how content we are, how happy, mm -hmm. right? All of those things have to do with, are you getting the story you thought you deserved? Yeah. Uh, it really is like an English teacher teaches you in an oblique way about critical thinking through stories and examples and yeah. when we add what, you as a blurb to the book that's perfect that's yeah. exactly what it is. <laughs> well right. and, and it, it's very effective um and one of the stories that you tell in fact you I want to circle back you just started to mention it was this idea of of slow looking you you taught one of your classes. You took kind of two weeks out of out of your normal class um, curriculum to explore this, and it was really a way of helping people to notice and start to engage in this kind of um, critical thinking. Can you talk about that that practice? 
Sure. So it's based on some scholarship, some literature, there's some books on it. And in fact, I have my students at one point read a couple of chapters out of Alexandra Horowitz, who did this, this exercise where she walked around her block in New York City. But each time she took a walk, she took a different expert and they walked really slowly and the expert talked about whatever their deal was, whether it was fonts or geology. One time she took her two-year-old and she talks about how slowing down, but also, you know, looking with other people sort of gives her this just richer and richer. I mean, she wrote an entire book about mm -hmm. all the things she noticed about one city block but the slow looking sort of movement technique is really about yeah trying to teach students uh lots of different techniques because we you know even whatever generation you are now we're scrollers right we we read in this way that is you know is necessary for the social media we're consuming but it's it's not great for any kind of sustained reasoning or critical thinking and so just a lot of us have lost it whether we're college students or not. So yeah, one of the things I have them do is we go out, um, Calvin has a very large um, nature preserve. We, we literally have like a hundred acre wood at Calvin. <laughs> um, and uh, it's beautiful, but also a lot of times they, they don't know it's there. So one of the things I like to do when they're freshmen is show them a few of our campus things that they might enjoy. But I have them go and we talk about looking, you know, sort of laterally and vertically. They have to sit for 15 minutes, just still, with no technology and observe, and then they write down what they saw. Then they do exercises where they walk, ones where they walk more quickly. And they, again, they talk about what you're seeing at different speeds. I make them do various kinds of drawing. Um, they don't have to be good because I'm not good, but um, just talking about at different, at different levels of sort of magnification. Um, and scale, scale and scope. And so we, I just want them before they actually start to dig into written literature and scholarly literature, because it's our, our first year writing class is really about argumentation. And, but I want you to be able to think about what you're looking at. And then the other thing is, as we go into the art gallery, I ask them to pick painting. And then we reflect on why they picked what they picked. I do timed exercises where they have to stare for a certain amount of time. And some of these, a lot of these are adapted out of some of the other resources. So I can't claim that they're my own, but a lot of them I sort of have adapted. But it's very interesting because we sometimes see that there are paintings that are beautiful, but kind of exhaust, mm -hmm. exhaust the view. You know, 10, 10 minutes of like detailed looking. You've seen it, you've appreciated it, but there are some other things that really you could stand there for an hour and you wow. still would see it all. And so then we talk about how that applies to the scholarly work we're going to do and how sources are like that too. And questions are like that. And when I want them to come up with re research questions, I want them to pick one that's going to, you know, reward the looking, but also just for them to learn more about sitting silently and then inventorying, because then we use that practice when we start looking at the next couple of um, assignments that they write. I say, now let's do some, like do some scale work, do some inventorying, do some. So it really all kind of builds. Um, so taking that first two weeks to learn some techniques, then we keep using them across the semester. But also just to say, what, what would it mean to sit without your phone for 20 minutes? Yeah. What would it mean to like look at something without constant pinging? Because I think part of the problem is the students are trying to engage, but we've just learned this like constant looking over. And so just 
what, what would be nice about that? And they really love it. I mean, they, at first they're a little like, why are we doing this? Or it's boring or, but really they try to engage it. And um, I think it, it's a, it's kind of an interesting way in. So, yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I, well, I think we could all, we could all bear doing with that, yeah. right? Whether that's the people <laughs> in our lives, whether that's the ability to sort of say, what's the thing to which I'm going to give the, my most attention? Mm -hmm. um, and how can I continue to train myself to do that in a world that is always, I mean, I, I quote T.S. Eliot, one of my favorite lines from Eliot is, we are distracted from distraction by distraction. Mm -hmm. And he wrote that in the 40s. And I just think that is that is modern that is modern life. That is definitely the academic life where you're constantly, someone's in your door, there's emails, there's grading, there's a constant fight to sort of move towards the undistracted and the life that has takes time for some things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that you do that exercise with your students and I love hearing about um, how much you enjoy teaching and your attitude of deep respect for this up and coming Gen Z students. And I would love for you to, you, you talk about this in, in your book, you write about this quite a bit in the, the final chapter. And I'm right. wondering um, for our listeners, what habits or practices help you to cultivate that love and respect for your students? It's funny because I was not actually going to write the final chapter. That was in my original thinking about the book and what I was trying to do with story. I was, I, it, it felt like, oh, I'm not sure that I really need to talk about that. And it was my editor that said, you know, I really feel like this is an area that mm. as I've looked at a lot of what you've written other places and stuff that this is, and I said, yeah, you're probably right. And so the last chapter is really supposed to be helping us think about ourselves as learners and as, and as teachers probably goes both ways. It, it, it circles back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. My teachers were so respectful of me. They asked me to do lots of things. So I had professors that asked me to help them index their books. And, and that may sound like, oh, great, get the kid to do the gut labor, but it was wonderful. Like you have to have, people have to teach you how to do things. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm really persuaded a lot. Um, this, this pandemic generation, my colleagues and I keep talking about how there's things that by them being out of high school for a couple of years, you know, at home or whatever, they've missed some things. They've, yeah. they've missed learning how to do things. And I think one thing that if you're a professor, you have to remember is that someone taught you. You didn't always, you did not spring full form from the head of Zeus. In other <laughs> words, there's all sorts of things that we forget that someone had to teach you at some point. Someone had to teach you. I remember being a freshman and I had a professor that was very fond of the word hegemony. And every day, every class period, he would say hegemony. Well, I did not know what hegemony was, nor did I know how to spell it. And so I would write <laughs> it aside in this. And I was a very well-read person. Like I, I did not go to college. I mean, I'm one of those people that were going to be English majors. So, um, and but I just kept writing it phonetically and the side of my notes. And then I'd leave class and I'd try to look. And it just took me forever to figure out hegemony and hegemonic. And someone had to tell me. You know, and someone has to tell you uh, some of the some of the things about being a grown up in the world, mm -hmm. uh, and that has to be someone who loves you and cares about you. Uh, and so it could be your parent, it's your professor, especially as you're being acculturated into being an academic and what that means and what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate. So I kind of want to always remember that they don't know. Mm -hmm. 
Um, in general, I think students, um, my students are lovely and earnest and they want to do right. And they're usually not, yes, you always have the one or two that are trying to pull a fast one and that's fine. I've also seen that too. And also one of the things about being a professor a long time is it's, it, it starts to, it's not that new and it, like, there's not much I haven't seen now, right? Like, yep, I've dealt with someone flaming out and I, you know, and so I always say to them, look, I'm here to do this with you. But I also think it's important. I talk about one of my colleagues and co-teaching with him when I was a young professor at Calvin. And what I loved is no matter how obvious their point, it was new for them. Mm -hmm. And I think when you've taught something a million times, of course, you already know. And, and I think the the tendency then is to speed up, to be like, come on, dummies, come with me. Right. But they but they have never seen this poem by Tennyson. Yeah. They haven't ever read Dante. They don't know all these things. They haven't studied all, right? So when they make a sort of obvious point that they're quite excited about, and you think that's a pretty basic point, kid, but it isn't a pretty basic point. And to kind of yuck their yum um, doesn't help them learn to move to the next point. And so to try to always remember the newness for them, which is very hard, the older and older it gets for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a lot of us teach a lot of this, especially in intro classes. I've taught the thesis sentence a million times, <laughs> but it's new for them today. Mm -hmm. And I had a guy one time tell me this story. He was an actor. He, at one point in his life, had met Minnie Pearl, you know, the, the comedian. Uh, and um, she had told him this story once when they were in a company together. And she was in this show. And night after night, they were starting to get bored of doing the show. And so they started kind of yucking it up and not being all that serious and whatever. Well, one night she was in the show and it was towards the end run and they had been, and they were getting really bad. They were sort of not taking the show all that seriously. And it was fine, but definitely, well, people had come to see her from New York to see if she could be in a Broadway show, but what they saw was her yucking it up. Right. And she they didn't even come backstage to ask her. And what she said to him was, everybody, every night the show is new for those people. Mm -hmm. And you have to always give them the best every night, even though it's not new for you. Yeah. And I think that's that's really true to respect the fact that this is new for them. And this is their one their one time through. And and if you run it for them, you know, they may they may never live into whatever their possibility was here. And finally, I think it's really important, that, especially as Christian people, I think we have the wonderful sense that, you know, this is my brother and my sister. These people matter to God and therefore they need to matter to me. And if I need to not bear witness, false witness against my neighbor or, you know, all the things that are, we are supposed to do to be neighborly, I think that extends to our students. And I, I think that when we don't do that, we're sort of in danger of being like those Israelites who were so fearful about going into the promised land that they all had to die off before the younger generation could go do it. Yeah. I quote in the book, uh, Psalm 145, one generation shall testify of your works to another. And I say in the book that I always, when I was younger, thought of that as old people will talk to me and I need to learn from old, older people and I need to understand God's mighty works over many generations. But it wasn't about me talking to them. And I really think, though, if you read that verse, it's about generations speaking to one another. Mm -hmm. And I think we get in the most trouble when we're we're so sure that whatever our perspective is, the generational ladder is the generation uh, is the is the way 
And I'm not hearing what the concerns are of my younger brothers and sisters about what the church should be and what the church should do and what they want to do in the world. Right. So I I think that's really, if you, if you can't be in a classroom that you care about what they think, then you really shouldn't be in the classroom with them because they should be giving you new insight into these works too, because they have such a different perspective than anyone I'm ever going to have. And they're going to see Jane Eyre differently than I am. That's partly what, what, why I still like teaching though, is because it's old to me. And yet if I'm doing it right, it becomes new because of them. Yeah. We're running out of time. And so I do want to ask one final question. And that is, you know, you share so many examples of beautiful literature in the book. And I'm wondering if you would like to read a favorite one here as we close. Well, there are so many favorite parts, aren't there? There's a lot of poetry in here. Um, I I love the part from Dante where I talk about, uh, there's a wonderful line in his Will is Our Peace. But I think um, the other thing that I try to do is highlight poets and writers that I hope you'll read. And one of them is actually my very dear friend and colleague, James Wart, who is a wonderful contemporary poet. Please look up her stuff online, jameswart.com. And she has a poem uh, that she takes a title from uh, from a book, some of you may know who are philosophers, called On Beauty and Being Just. And she says, this is her call for us to delight in kind of the extravagant. It is possible that I have been unfair to them, the flamboyance, to opals, to abalones, to moths more phosphorescent than any eye shade I've worn, because who knows? Maybe the painted bunting would willingly trade his layered paint-by-number capes for the robin's rusty apron. Maybe the hibiscus is not a satellite dish tilting on its stem to overhear the praise of passerbys, but an umbrella, mortified that day has left it open in a narrow place to dry. Maybe the northern light's magic is static, escaped photons from the cupped palm of a modest earth smoothing her skirt. But there too, I have been unjust, asking the the bird to disavow his jaunty beauty, rose mallow to flower rue. Wanting to be fair, let me trade it for plain delight. Let me quit shaming the flame-like things, or at least let the wind unwinding its argon sarong not mind the likes of me. And I love that idea, right? It's okay to love the flamboyant. The poet Blake says, exuberance is beauty. And I would say to all of you women listening, and men, if you're also listening, be yourself, be your own crazy self. I think students, and actually most of your colleagues, authenticity is more important than being a should. Hmm. Um, So I encourage you to embrace whatever you are, whether that's the Robin or or some other like more extravagant kind of bird. That is perfect. I love that. Well, Jennifer, this has been such a fun conversation. <laughs> and, agree, um, agree. And I'm I'm excited to share this with our our listeners. Uh, can you tell the listeners how they can follow you and your work and what's on the horizon for you? We haven't talked at all <laughs> about the Festival of Faith and Writing, which right. I know is coming up. Yes. Um, so, so I'm. 
uh, the co-director of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing and our signature event, which I hope some of you have been to, but if you have not, it's a wonderful three-day extravaganza of readers and you don't have to be a writer to come. We call it the Festival of Faith and Writing because it's to say lots of kinds of writing. Uh, this year, we actually have a very cool workshop day, full day workshops, including one with Suzanne Stabile of the Enneagram and Caitlin Horrocks, who's a wonderful writer, but also half day workshops. If you are a graduate student, you can get the student rate. Um, and if you're a professor and you bring six students, you also get the student rate. So definitely be in touch. It's April 11th through the 13th, 2020, 2024. And the workshop day is on the 10th. Yeah, I'm not the greatest social media person. I am on Twitter. You can find me there, although no one's going to ever be on Twitter anymore. Probably I'm on Instagram. <laughs> I blog with the um, Reform Journal. So every other week I'm on the Reform Journal. That's reformjournal.com. I do a lot of speaking. So if you'd like to have me to your campus, uh, just reach out. My email is on the Calvin website and I do a lot of faculty development, teaching stuff. I can talk about lots of different things, governance, all the fun stuff uh, of, of academia. So we'd love to come visit you on your campus if, if that would be of interest. Perfect. That is great. And I'll put all those, all that little, all those information, little pieces in the show notes. Was there anything that you had hoped to say that we didn't get to? Yeah. I knew you would be, you and I would be simpatico. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I just say the most important thing for me is to, is to remind people that, you know, they are immortal diamonds and yeah. live, live into that that idea of them so if this is if the book is a treasure map i hope the treasure that you find is is your own immortal diamondness jennifer's instruction in the ways our stories make up the fabric of our lives is powerful and it makes me pause and reconsider the stories i'm telling about my own life today i'm grateful for her work in helping us to connect the dots between our own stories and the work of God's great story in our world. I hope you check out her book. Remember that you can find a link to the book and the IVP discount code in the show notes. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear a bonus from our podcast where Jennifer shares a few more thoughts on being a well-contented spinster. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Aunt Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters, so if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my conversation with Jennifer. A few times in the in this book, you mention being single without children. And at one point, you call yourself a well-contented spinster, <laughs> which gave me a chuckle. But I just found your reflections on this to be very refreshing. And I'm wondering, can you say more about what you enjoy about your life circumstances? Well, as you can tell already in this conversation, I try to enjoy a lot of my circumstances all the time. I think, you know, I mentioned earlier that I moved a lot as a child. And so mm -hmm. I, I come from a family culture where 
despite living lots of places, or maybe because of living lots of places, my parents really were a lot about celebrations. And we we found lots of reasons to, whether that was cake or pie or the, you know, occasional ice cream, whatever, it wasn't mm-hmm. always food related, but but just as a, a family to sort of do that. But I, but I also, and also to really appreciate you can, when you move a lot, you can either be really sad and resentful that you're in a different place and you're not in the place you hope to be, or you can sort of understand really cool things about that place. So every time before we moved, my parents would do all kinds of research and talk to us about, oh, well, when we move here, this is all the things we're going to get to do. And I, I really come from a family of a get to do kind mm-hmm. of thing, uh, as opposed to, oh, it's sad that we live here and we can't do this. Right. And I think one of the things I've often seen in sort of literature around singleness or the way um, church church talks about it, I think, you know, some of some of the kind of what I would term the and this is strong, but some of the idolatry of the family, I think, comes out of a church culture that is worried about promiscuity and broken marriages and, you know, the seventies yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Uh, but I think there's sort of an overreaction then in some traditions um, or in some parts of the country where then um, marriage is really the only thing that could possibly be satisfactory. And this is another place where I think the scripture is pretty clear that both marriage and singleness are great gifts. Yeah. And, you know, we can't be greedy. We don't get both. But what's the gift that you have received? And how can you think about that? So again, what's the story you're living into that makes singleness lesser for you? And I want to say that with all due respect and and really deep empathy for my single siblings, including my actual, one of my actual siblings who's single, who have a deep desire to still be married. So I think it's really hard in this discourse because people tend to be very like either A or B. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's a lot of people who really are struggling and there's a deep lament. There's things people wanted. Um, and that's true in life. There's things people want. They want a tenure track job. They want to live near to their parents. They want to, right? So life is full of of disappointments and desires that we have that somehow don't get met. So I don't want to say this blithely to just say, oh, you know, suck it up and be joyful. That, That would be sort of triumphalistic and I think not fair to people's desires desires for good things for companionship and and children and a range of things i think for me though the longer that i went you know i moved from seattle which was not very a married place to the midwest which was extremely married and you know i was a an academic at a place that almost everyone was already married and life happens there's another interesting thing is my students will especially early when i was younger would say when did you choose to be single Hmm. I would say, well, no, there wasn't sort of this moment where I was like, from from October 5th on, I will now be single. And and I think there's also this kind of theory that, oh, whatever you choose, then it's okay. I think most of life is not chosen, <laughs> right? I mean, my mother died when I was very young, didn't choose that. I moved to the Midwest. Yes, I did accept this job. But, you know, I mean, the sort of, if I just make all the right choices, everything's going to go well for me. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true for anybody single or married. And I also think we live in this world too, where everyone is so future oriented that they're never in the moment. This Mm -hmm. kind of goes back to our slow looking thing. So it's always, well, next week (laughs) when this is done, oh, then I'll, then I'll feel satisfied. Or when I finally do this, or when I finally have a child, or when I finally have a grandchild or when I, 
And it's always so forward looking that we're never in the present. Mm -hmm. And so when I was younger and it appeared that, you know, Mr. Darcy was not coming, I began to think, but what about today? I only get today. I only get the present. And who am I in the present? Well, in the present, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm a friend, I'm a colleague, I'm, I'm, I have more work than I know what to do with. <laughs> there are more connections that I could make in my life. And I, and am I fully making those? Mm -hmm. um, can I say I'm fully invested in, in what I already have without looking for something that I don't have to fulfill me, which my theology teaches me doesn't fulfill me anyway. Yeah. Right. We don't live in a world where do you remember in uh, maybe you're young, much younger than I am, but there used to be these things where these like two heart halves and the the boyfriend and the girlfriend would wear them. Well, that's not our math. We mm -hmm. are not half people. We are one plus one. We are we are gospel math. So if I already believe that I'm complete, that I, I'm not looking for you to complete me, then if I'm complete, then what what is my calling today? And that may change. And I always live in expectation that God may have something different. But today, I feel like I need to, to be present in my life. And to be present in my life means making the connections that I have now and delighting in those as in as far as I can. Lamenting things that I'm sad that never happened, which I think is really important. I think we have to name things, but not making that my full identity. And I think to also not be afraid. So, you know, Jesus so often says, don't be afraid. Well, he says that because we are. Yeah. But what are we afraid of? That somehow the story about me is that I'm insufficient, that I'm not attractive enough for someone to desire, that I'm not, you know, and so much of the story that when we are feeling bad is usually a story that's telling me I'm not enough. Well, God has told me I'm enough. And God has told me that being single is just fine with him. Mm -hmm. So if that's true, then I need to figure out what the content is in my life that will make me content. And I love that those two words are the same and that am I as fully invested as I can be? And then I, I trust God to give me what I think God thinks I need. And in this case, so far, God has decided that I don't need one living in my house. And that's okay. <laughs> I, I actually... You know, if you think about God's plan for you and that God only wants good things for you, if you, well, this is what God thinks is the good thing for me. I'm like, okay, how is this a good thing for me? And it turns out I actually love it. <laughs> and I travel and I have, there are, it's a gift that I, like, I go to a lot of, if my students is on a, a athletic team. I like to go to their games just to, not everyone, but I occasionally will pop up at a game or a play or a musical thing, or if they need me to meet at 5.30, I often will because I don't mind eating at 6, 6.30. But if I had little kids, I could never do that. Right. And it's fine. So my colleagues can't. And they also have a lovely life. But I also, I can be available and I have relationships that other people don't get to have. And I don't get to have some of the relationships they get to have. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is nobody gets it all. And I right. think you asked me earlier about sort of young women scholars. And I think there's that very pernicious, you can have it all. And I just don't think that's true. Yeah. I think God promises an, us an abundant life and a full life, but not, all, not at all. And that's okay. 
Um, and I think understanding there's a there's a guy at Covenant whose name is escaping me. I think Kelly Capic is his name. Anyway, he has a wonderful book on limitations. Hmm. It's called You're Only Human. And I think that's a really interesting book to begin to say, I believe in a God of plenitude, even as I myself am quite finite. And so what today has been given to me that I can be attentive to and thankful for? And how is it that I'm living out the gifts God has given me today, even as that might change? Mary, that's, that's, I mean, there's no one like you, Jennifer Holberg. It's really <laughs> great to hear everything that you're saying. Well, I thank you it. so much. 